Hey friends, welcome to the On to Something podcast. My name is Zane Witcher and I'll be with you for the next couple minutes. Thanks for giving us the time because it's about to be a really good time. This week I got the chance to sit down and talk with Nick Tatum. Nick is a man of many skills. One, he is a professor and he's beloved by a lot of the students that he teaches to. And he is also the director of student productions. You will hear him refer to an event at some point, which is linked to the university he's teaching at. And the event is called Sing Song and basically is this massive student production that's put on very well and it involves the entire university, as well as he also plans and coordinates other events and executes them well. So I wanted to sit down with Nick because I'm always thinking of a couple things with him. One, he's excellent at coordination and recruiting and getting reinforcements behind ideas. He's going to talk about being an Enneagram 3 and how that is just his thriving place. And the second is I always enjoy listening to him when talking about strategic thinking because he's always thinking how can he line things up well for something to be executed. So it'll be a very interesting podcast and uh, I'm ready for you to listen. So without further ado, Nick Tatum. All right, so here's my first question that I wanted to go at. What is something that Nick Tatum adores that other people just don't even know is on your radar? I love any sort of TV, TV in general, mostly because I feel like all day, every day, I'm on the go talking to people, doing things, functioning at a very high strategic level Mm -hmm. when I'm communicating. And I just want to sit down and watch something that brings my brain back to earth. Yep. That's a little bit trashy, yeah. a little bit exciting, funny, but nothing too intense. Hmm. So I yeah. love to watch TV. I love The Good Place. Uh-huh. It's a great TV show. Yep. Superstore, yep. great TV Classic. show. Classic. Carolina will go days on Superstore. Days Superstore. on Superstore. It's that quick humor, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And there's classic Parks and Rec. So not anything yeah. that's like super dramatic or high energy, Yeah, but something that keeps my attention. So, like, would a movie like The Quiet Place or something like that be, like, add to the stress? Like, you wouldn't be about I that? I hate scary movies. Really? Despise scary movies. I just would... It doesn't make any sense to me that someone would willingly submit themselves <laughs> to something that is terrifying or something that, like, puts them in an uncomfortable position. Yeah. Like, I'm not about to pay you $15 right. to get the crap scared out to pee in my jeans yep. in the movie theater yeah, or at home. I just, there's no enjoyment for me. In the See, I'm good with it as long as it's like super artistic. So like quiet place, I'm like wonderful, like scare me to death, but others that's like nope. it or stuff like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. not about nothing. Yeah. Uh, the last scary movie I watched was what's that creepy one with the person who goes like, <laughs> the grudge, the grudge. Couldn't that be all of them at some point? You're right. <laughs> The Grudge, it was with the girl who made that scary noise. I think I probably watched half of it, and I said, this makes no sense. Why would I ever do this to uh-huh. myself? I'm sure there's going to be some hater that's going to immediately know what that movie is, and they're going to post I'm, that movie I'm is. sure it's The Grudge. Yeah. Okay. All right. For the record. For, for the record. The, dr- the Grudge. The Grudge. me off to all scary movies. The yeah. Grudge. Some people are going to know who you are. I think around like Abilene community, people talk about you. You're a Jonas brother. Oh, it's Nick Tatum. My brother Feel free to the actual Jonas brother. Is he he's really? got long hair, tattoos. Uh-huh. He's a pastor, plays isn't he? guitar. Yeah, he's a worship minister. 
Yeah, he's still over in Lubbock. Yeah, he does like the equivalent of Breakaway at AM. Yeah. But at Love in Lubbock, so it's called Raider Church, and he just planted a new church. Wow. So Didn't you, you tell me things? like at one time he got on an airplane and they like dropped Easter eggs? Like for people? Yeah, they do crazy stuff. Easter eggs over Texas Tech football. <laughs> Out of a hell, I think it's helicopter. I don't want to misrepresent. Yeah, come on the record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They're always doing crazy stuff. Their church is really focused on like getting people excited and making them a little uncomfortable right. so that they feel like it's approachable. Huh. Cool. Back to your question. So I started working at ECU full time in 2017. So I'm in my 2.4th year back on campus. I am the director of student productions, which is in student life. So in that role, I mainly am in charge of sing song and freshman follies. So when I say in charge of, I mean recruiting the students, managing it, doing all the creative things, doing the music. I mean, I'm the only employee at the university technically for both sing song and follies. And then I came back and realized that for all the shows, there was a need for more singers. And so to help that, and because I love to sing myself, I started three acapella groups. There's a freshman group called Foundation, which is uh, third year right now. And there's two upperclassmen groups, Grace Note and Hilltop. One's mixed and one's just girls. So that's one of the hats I wear at ACU. So student right. productions kind of represents all of those things. Right. And then I'm also an assistant professor in the communication and sociology department. Casual. Mm-hmm. Casually. Yep. One of my stipulations for coming back to ACU was that I could do both things. Because I Was it really? Yeah. So Tom Craig, he decided he was going to retire. Uh-huh. And they called and asked me if I wanted to take over the gig. It's something we had always kind of talked about jokingly. Uh, but I lived in another state and I was uh-huh. getting my PhD. Uh, but I thought about it and I said, really, the only reason I'll come back is if, in addition to running student productions, you also give me a, a job teaching. That's what I'm getting my PhD for. You know, yep. I, I love sing song and I love all those creative things. But the reason what I want to do long term is right. do research and be a professor. So I teach anywhere from two to four classes a semester mm-hmm. in communication and sociology. And there are a variety of classes, like a lot of introductory classes. I like to be in classes where I can recruit students because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a dem- different demographic than a lot of the professors. For young, sure. involved. For sure. And so I do a lot of those. I teach a lot of statistics classes mm-hmm. or research methods classes. That's what most of my doctoral work was in. Mm-hmm. And then I also teach a lot of kind of catch-all classes that are fun. Yeah. So yeah that's what my sure. world looks like at ACU. Yeah, so it's like a really like small, empty plate of yours that <laughs> sure. you're... Yeah, just <laughs> casual. just not doing a lot all the time. <laughs> okay, so here's one of my questions, because people probably wonder, you have kind of a rare story, of, and I'm going to let you roadmap yourself in a second, but you spent a lot of time at ACU, and then you stepped away, and then you came back. So can you just roadmap that experience for people? Because most people don't have kind of the roadmap that you're on right now Absolutely. as a whole. So I started at ACU as a freshman in 2009, started off as a music major, quickly changed because I was one, bored, and two, I had a ton of musical experience in high school. And so I came and decided to like take the freshman music classes and was bored out of my mind. Yeah. And I didn't really feel like I was being challenged. And I'm someone who like loves competition and being challenged. Yep. Enneagram 3 just tattooed Absolutely. on my forehead. So it was a disaster because it, I would never have been satisfied. So then I was undecided for a little bit. Meanwhile, all through college, I worked at Pine Cove Christian Camps. Right. Love camp. Of course. 
And so I said, why not get a degree in something that might like set me up to run a summer camp mm-hmm. or run a Christian camp? So I was a family studies major with a ministry minor, mostly because we all know at ACU, you take one extra class, you're a Bible minor. You right. know? So it's oh, strategic. I'm yeah. like, why would, I not, under. why would I not <laughs> add those unnecessary initials? You don't get initials for a minor. Well, it's like a court at graduation. Yeah. You know, like in high school, I joined the math club. Right. Not I'm because done. I cared, but because yeah, I wanted to court. court you know? Tom asked me if I was interested in staying at ACU for my master's uh-huh. and help him out kind of as a graduate assistant in a capacity. And I was like, okay, why not? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'd kind of gotten burned out on camp, uh-huh. meaning I'd spent so much time there, I didn't want to do it full time. And I said, sure. And so then I looked online at the available master's degrees and I said, what looks easy? Right. Because something you need to know about me is I'm someone who likes to learn and like like school, uh-huh. but I really not someone who like challenged myself in undergrad uh-huh. at least. You uh-huh. know, like as a family studies major, we just like watch movies and watch Dave Ramsey YouTube clips, <laughs> which I'm not not complaining for. The you know, love him, love him. I know he's probably <laughs> listening right now, but didn't learn a ton in undergrad. Do so, you, do you find that the three tendency of like you only engage what you know you can succeed or defeat? Do you do you feel like that was a thing for you in that season? Or uh, I feel as if maybe getting a family studies degree was more strategic in the sense that I was able to devote all of my time to extracurricular. Oh, I see. And yeah. that let me succeed in those avenues. Okay, I see. It. And strategically, family studies gave me, you know, it had a direction, but it, it didn't suck up so much of my time that I could do other things. Sure. Yeah. So then I picked communication out of the blue. I had never, I had taken one communication class, but... I don't know why I chose communication. Started off in 2013 as a master's student in communication and ended up really, really enjoying it. I love, and I'm not surprised. I think what I enjoyed about family studies was interacting with other people and how people interact and why they do what they do. Something that is on my mind 24-7 and always has been. And so communication offered a platform and words to describe. Yeah. Those things I was already thinking, you know, personal. Yep. As a master's student, I also started teaching. I just loved teaching. It's like having a captive audience and you can do whatever you want, make all the jokes you want, teach them things that have to do with the class, but also just about life. I just loved teaching. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, I was working with Tom. He gave me a lot of responsibility, which is I was, I was really thankful for. And I, of course, love to sing songs administratively, just like I had enjoyed it as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. So then I got to go to some conferences in my master's for uh, my degree and really fell in love with the idea of doing research and was fascinated. I'd all have, I've always loved numbers and math, and people were doing really cool things about interesting topics, which kind of motivated me to want to get my PhD, which I never in a million years thought I would do, right? I was a family studies major. And so I, there's a lot of different areas of specialization in communication. The area that interested me most was instructional communication, which is the communication that takes place in any teaching setting. So it could be ministerial, it could be instructors in college, training and development, whatever it may be. It's only two programs for instructional communication in the country. One is at West Virginia, one's at the University of Kentucky. 
So I drove up there. I didn't drive. I flew up there, <laughs> rented a car, visited West Virginia. I didn't love my visit to West Virginia. Ended up going to next. Kentucky. Yep. Loved it there. It's huh. basically like Austin of Kentucky. Lexington okay. is where yeah, the yeah. University of Kentucky is. Lots of really nice people, really good environment, uh-huh. a good focus on instructional communication. I had a great potential advisor if I went there. So I applied, got in. I got a graduate teaching assistantship, which at the PhD level, you're basically a full-time professor uh-huh. teaching your own classes, uh-huh. taking classes. So I graduated from ACU in 2015 and moved to Kentucky, where I got my PhD, which was a full-time job because I was also teaching. And meanwhile, ACU flew me back every year for same stuff. Wow. Because they were having a hard time filling that spot I had left uh-huh. administ- administratively. And you were how many years over in Kentucky? So I was only there for two. Okay. Your PhD is supposed to take four to five years. How it works is there's a coursework phase where you take all your classes, and it's like two or three years. And the second half, you're writing your dissertation. So right after I finished my classes, that's when I got the call from ACU. I was halfway done with my degree. But the thing about a dissertation is you could write it, you know, in Alaska if you wanted. Yep. And so it was perfect timing for me to move back to Abilene. So I, during the first two-ish years, I was back here. On top of all that, I was also finishing my degree, writing my dissertation. All at the same time. So a lot of stuff. Yep. So that's the timeline. That's how I got back. That's why I came back. That's how I ended up doing the things I'm doing. I think it's ironic that starting college at ACU, mm-hmm. I was a music major and said, never again. Uh-huh. And here I am working full time yep. doing music. In a capacity that has that. Exactly. Wow. So it's, it's ironic in a lot of ways. What do, you, what do you think was like the biggest factor that made you say yes to come back and work in a place that you'd previously been to? A couple things. I'd say first, for anyone who's getting their master's or PhD, you are poor. <laughs> you are yeah. poor as heck. Man, yeah. I had no money. And I, it's it's a stressor, right? So as someone who wants to be successful and as someone who wants to win, not having a lot of money sucks. And having a full-time job offered to me basically was amazing. So that was number one. You know, I wanted to start paying for student loans and I wanted to start saving money and it offered a good opportunity. Two, I think for me, I always would have wondered what it was like to come back to You know, if I'm a professor, I think I would have always regretted not experiencing and uh, investigating to see what my life might look like back. Because I love ACU, right? It gave me so much for six years of college. And when the opportunity came, I thought, you know, this is a really good way to test and see if this is a place I'd love to be. And because I'm still getting my degree, you know, it's not a guarantee that I'm going to be here forever. But for a season, I think it makes sense for me to, to kind of explore the option of being yeah. in a private Christian school, you know, because coming from Kentucky, huge, mm-hmm. non-Christian in many ways, I wanted to see what it was like. So those are the two main reasons, because hmm. I was poor <laughs> <laughs> and because I would always regret it. Yeah. So when you think about like taking this step um, that you've already taken back to ACU, like what, what do you think you would summarize as like, okay, my long-term this is what I want to be about in life. 
like, do you feel like you're doing a part of that right now? Do you have something that you envision in the future with it? Like kind of, kind of fill in the, the gap that's ahead for you. I definitely think that my, my job as this kind of hybrid has a expiration date. Okay. Mostly because I'm really lucky that in this phase in my life, I'm still young and have lots of energy, which lets me stay up until 1am and work with students. I'm still not tied down, right? I'm just have my cat who doesn't take up a lot of time. And so does ask for attention, but does some when, when needed, (laughs) but you know, a lot of the time I would go home and have a family I don't have. And so I'm able to put that time towards basically having another job. Sure. But even in the past three years, you know, I felt, I felt me being more tired and Mm -hmm. me being more excited about other things. So I don't know when I'll stop doing this. I want to see it through. You know, I wouldn't have started unless I had a four year plan that I wanted to finish. Yeah. I think long term, I want to be a professor, but more so I want to do research. Mm -hmm. Research is super fascinating to me. Uh I think it has a long shelf life in the fact that, you know, you could be 80 years old in your hospital bed and do research. Right. It's needed. And it's needed. And I also really love problem solving. And research is a really interesting way to solve problems in a way that most people can't, but I think most people understand and value. And so that's, I think, the, the basket I want to put most of my eggs in long term. Right. Whether that's in, in the industry, it's so like working at a corporation or working at a school where I get to do more research or, you know, even at ACU helping undergrad students do research. That's so you'd be game even going outside of academia. That's for sure. Point. Okay. You just know research is at the base no matter what. Yes. And okay. more, more importantly, quantitative research. So okay. I want to be able to analyze surveys. That's kind okay. of my niche. So does that fall in like your strategicness of you want to be able to explain the reasoning behind why we do what we do? Is that kind of at the core of what your interest is? Yeah. I, I'm less strategic and more of a someone who likes to see pieces fit together, if that makes sense. Okay. So I try to make sense of the world around me and put it in a puzzle and like to try to see how I can best put the puzzle together. So I think that's, that's research is okay. the idea that I can think of all these pieces and hypothesize about what might be happening and then get confirmation hmm. that it is or is not yeah. successful. But also research is very, very competitive. You know, I love to publish in journals uh-huh. and submit to conferences. And so it kind of feeds that comp- competitive spirit in a way that lets me be competitive to the outside world, but not necessarily the people around me. So I think that's another part of it that I'm drawn to. Okay. All right. So let me transition off on that one just a little bit. Um, let's talk about let's talk about the angle that you know you just described in kind of this past three years of trying to juggle what you did with work also with kind of these outside projects. Cause I mean, you were launching, it seemed like you were launching acapella groups while you were also writing the dissertation while you were also in this new role. Correct. Um, and I'm assuming a decent amount of the people that are listening to this podcast are doing something of that nature. I don't know if it's to that extent, Mm -hmm. but what would, what would you coach people on to say? Like if you're having a, if you're in that phase of life where you're trying to juggle multiple things. How would you tell them to navigate that? 
I think I would say two things. So first, projects, for me, I want all my projects to be winning, and I want my projects to be successful, and I want them to be their best iteration of itself. And the recipe for that to happen often is not throwing yourself fully at a project and seeing its full final iteration at the very beginning. So I would recommend saying that if you have something that you're adding to your plate, that thinking long-term is the best approach to it, right? So I'll give acapella groups as an example. Having three acapella groups, a freshman group with 16 people, an upperclassman group with 14, other group, a mixed group with 14. If I had started all of them at the same time and had put all my time and energy and resources towards it and had started with a huge concert, that's what I want, but it would have been very unrewarding because I wouldn't have been successful and I would have been exhausted and I would have had to sacrifice other things. Mm -hmm. So for me, I thought, what's my ultimate goal? I want to create a culture of acapella singing at ACU and I want to have big, well-attended concerts. And from there, I walk backwards. So if I want to have one big concert, then I probably need to have a small concert before it that has three groups. And then before that small concert of three groups, maybe I only have a small concert with one group, right? And then before that, I have to start that group, right? So for me, I thought the best way for me to get to the goal was to start a freshman-only acapella group, mostly because those people in three or four years would be the seniors. And by the time that I had a bigger entity of acapella groups, then they they would have already started kind of cultivating a spirit that I wanted to see because I've had them for the longest period of time. Mm -hmm. And then also they would be able to feed into other groups, right? So our first year, we had one group. It was very simple. It was completely successful in everything we tried to do, but it was Mm -hmm. very small scale. Mm -hmm. Well, then the next group, I started two other acapella groups, mostly consisting of the people who were in the freshman acapella groups, right? Mm -hmm. So... I didn't have to start from scratch. I kind mm-hmm. of used building blocks to move on to the next step. Mm-hmm. Had a small concert, right? So I think that the thing is, is success isn't having a big idea and doing it when you have the idea, but it is creating smaller opportunities that are sustainable to grow along the way. Mm-hmm. So you can win along the way. Um, and I think that the longer you move towards a goal, at least in my hope, the system itself will kind of, kind of become self-serving and I have to do less along the way so that when I'm a, when I am tackling those big heavy projects I've created the infrastructure hmm. so that I'm not having to do everything mm-hmm. but that my work in the years past kind of works towards hmm. those big okay so let me repeat it back to you and then see if I, I have it correctly you think end goal first and then you're thinking what are the steps I have to take backwards to be able Correct. to start to build that and you're building in once you've taken all those steps back each step you take forward you're building an infrastructure behind it and some sort of infrastructure that's translatable to something else okay right so another example is sing song and freshman follies uh-huh. my first year i was back tom was still here and so i really only did freshman follies so for okay. me i said all right what do i want sing song to look like in three years and then how can I use Freshman Follies now mm-hmm. to create some sort of culture or some sort of system that is translatable to sing song that can be successful in itself, but that is setting up some sort of infrastructure and teaching these students how I think and why I think and 
what's important and what's not important. So that the next year when I was in charge of Sing Song, I had already put in some work oh, wow. for the first year. Yeah. And last year, right, I, I have 30 things I want to change about Sing Song. Right. But the first year, I can't do 30 things, right? right? So I picked four or five. And those four or five, I wanted and had to be satisfied with this. So that this year, those four or five things that I changed are still going to change on themselves without me doing work. Done. Okay. And now I can do additional things. Man, yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, so let's uh, – wow, that's beautifully articulated. Okay, let's move on that then. Uh, let's talk about some do and don'ts when transitioning in. So let let me set up listeners for this. Uh, sing Song is how many people through that weekend? Participating or coming? Uh, coming. It's about seven or 8,000, but plus more probably. Okay, and that's before we talk about people online viewing it or anything exactly. like beyond that. Okay, so you have a weekend where you have seven or 8,000 people come through. You kind of came in, transitioned, and you've changed some pieces as you've gone. And it's kind of something that's been like a high legacy. People feel very strongly emotional, as they always do with anything that has a long tradition in it. But especially sing song. But especially sing song. So talk to people who are working in like working in a field where like there's something already set, there's already a tradition there, there's already kind of expectations, and talk about do's and don'ts of like shifting that culture or changing something when you come into position. I'd really love to hear what was a thing or two that you were like, oh crud, I bumped into that and shouldn't have have tackled it that way. Well, I, under the school of thought that most people can't experience more than one strong emotion at a time. So let's say like I'm feeling nostalgic. That's going to be a prevailing emotion over sadness, right? I might still feel sadness, but there's going to be a single emotion that is dominating. Dominating. Exactly. Dominant. And so coming in, I knew that sing song is like changing something that people really care about. Mm -hmm. And so consciously I said, I need to combat any feelings of angst or anger or sadness and change with positive emotions Mm -hmm. and hopefully succeed in capturing people's positive emotions more than the negative emotions they'll experience. It doesn't mean they won't experience it, but I think their focus will be shifted away from them. Mm -hmm. So my two kind of philosophies were one, I just want the talent and the music and the production itself to be flawless because it's hard to complain about something that was really good. Right. Or well done. Well done. Exactly. And so that was one, but I, you know, I, I wanted it to be excellent anyway. Second, I really wanted to convince ACU as a whole, patrons of Sing Song, students that I deeply cared about what Sing Song was mm-hmm. and where it's gone. And I thought that if I could create a really strong sense of nostalgia, that I could make changes that people trusted me with. Because they understood that I cared about Sing Song and wasn't just changing for change's sake. So I think one thing that I was thinking of when I came in the role is people's perception of me. You know, I was 26 at the time mm-hmm. when I started the biggest event in Abilene, Texas. Right. And I'm sure they're thinking, all I'm going to choose is Bruno Mars. And all <laughs> we're going to do is, you know, make everything modern, you know. Yeah. And so I wanted to make sure that I gave them the impression to limit that as well. And so we started two big initiatives. So one, I immediately started to work with one of my friends, Courtney McGahack, to archive all of the past sing songs. Mm -hmm. So since 1957, she mostly converted every audio file, every video. And prior to my first sing song ever starting, we released every single past sing song online. 
Wow. And the campaign basically was relive your memories. Hmm. So come back to Sing Song. We still value what Sing Song is. The first year was everyone had to redo an act from the past. Hmm. Right. So I'm pulling that on oh, hunch. That's a brilliant so, move. And it, it theoretically got people who hadn't come in a long time to actually to choose come to back. come to Sing Song. The changes we made the first year, I would say, were changes that everyone wanted. There were things that I had heard a lot. I did a lot of listening to people of all ages at what they wanted to change. So this first year, while I think we made a lot of changes, they were changes people wanted. Uh And I think also it was overshadowed in a good way by this idea that we're bringing Sing Song back to its roots. Mm. So I think that itself built built a lot of goodwill with the people who were coming to Sing Song so that in this year, I continue to make changes. They don't really even remember the changes from last year. Mm. We're still pulling at... Uh, nostalgic heartstrings in a different way. This year we sold t-shirts that had every club or classes wins on the back, but we are uh, just kind of doing a normal show. So I'm thinking that the change between those two strategically will make people kind of forget that that pivot of last year allowed me to make some changes under the radar Mm -hmm. that now we'll just be taking for granted. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is good. I think when you come into a new position that it's important to prove to the people you are trying to lead and change that the change is for good and that you understand the history, huh. you understand the status quo. And I think once you've gained that in some sense, and they're more willing to trust you with changes wow. to make and what you're doing. That's massive. That's really good. Because I think sometimes the assumption is if someone's hired for a role and brought on, then everyone endorses, or at least the people's who the people whose opinion matters the most that hired you say like go for it and people just start to run through an organization when it's way more than the people who just hired you you've got to buy into like the culture that's there i just find that's a, that's a that's a really good strategic way of looking at transitioning in i also think though that in that initial phase it's important to to make changes though mm-hmm. i think it is almost scary for people like let's say uh, Highland gets a new preacher, uh, heaven. Yeah, and never seen that happen. Never seen that happen. <laughs> and the new preacher just sits back and listens and is strategic for a year and a half. And then after a year, is like, here's the changes, right? I feel like if you roll people into convincing them that you're not a changer, that when you are ready to change, it's going to oh, be wow. difficult. I so I feel like it is important, even if you are kind of assimilating at the very beginning, to still make some changes. Huh. And let people anticipate that you're someone that will make changes hmm. because otherwise I think it's going to catch them off guard. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's helpful. Okay. Tell me, tell me for a quick sec. Cause I want to move to coaching young adults. Cause I feel like you, you kill at that section of life. But one of the things I want to know just for like people who are on creative standpoint, what's your rhythm of like gaining creative ideas and kind of keeping like fresh things going while you're also trying to like, sustain a lot like what what's your rhythm of doing that i'm someone who finds creative energy only in really particular moments and settings so i would not even describe myself as creative which is a funny thing because i feel like so many people always ask me about creativity and i really don't think i am i think i'm so much more strategic Mm. i think like let's think of picking songs for sing song right i'm not like what's the most innovative thing I could do. What I'm thinking is, what's the demographic of the audience? Yep. What charts from the past three decades are going to be heard from the most people? 
How does it contrast with something else? And then I only have three options. Right. It's easy to pick one of those. Three. Uh, okay. So I think that a lot of creativity is strategic, but back to kind of the rhythm portion. I read a book one time called How to Write a Lot. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. It's a great book. It basically talks about putting yourself in a situation that you're most prone to writing well. You know, in my PhD, if it's 8 p.m. and the paper's due tomorrow, the pressure of the situation is going to make me write well. But is 8 p.m. really the best time for me to write? So the book really challenges you to try to figure out what time and what place get your juices flowing the most. So whether that's really early in the morning or maybe it's in small times, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at a coffee shop, right? So for me, I'm just going to talk about creativity, maybe more in the academic sense. It's really important for me to force myself into a place where historically I've known to be creative. And then it seems like I have a bigger wellspring to pull from when I'm in a scenario where, right? So for me, it's 4.30 a.m. 4.30 4.30 a.m. 4.30 a.m. You're hearing it real on the pod right now. 4.30 in the yeah, morning. Yeah, and I have to go to sleep first. I have to be, have woken up and be a little delirious. College messed you up a little bit. No, in college, I stayed up so late. But it wasn't until I started getting my PhD that I figured out that I need to turn my – I have to lull my brain a little bit and cancel out the world for me to really tap in wow. to create okay. energy. Yeah, yeah. And so that's 4.30. I, some, I a lot of times go back to sleep afterwards. Huh. So I like go to bed at 1, which is when I usually go to sleep. Uh-huh. I'm always on school, on campus doing stuff. Yep. Sleep for a couple hours, wake up, work for a couple hours, go back to bed, Holy wake cow. back up. And that just for me, even if I'm exhausted, like I can pull so much more creative energy in that specific time period. As opposed to another time, if I try to force myself to be creative, it's just not gonna happen. It's gonna get emptied quickly and it's gonna take a long time to put it back in. So I think avoiding oper- or avoiding places or times where I have to force myself to give creative energy and waiting for when it's naturally going to come and taking then is a way that I make sure that I can remain creative. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so move move to it's four thirty in the morning. That's crazy. That's hey, Zane and I used to be neighbors. If it worked, I'd get up and he'd see me, and I had already been up for a couple hours. True. You never knew when Nick was parking. You were asking yourself, "Is Nick about to start the day, or is he finished the day?" You never knew. I asked myself that too. That's <laughs> fair. What about um, what about teams? Like, teach me for a minute of like. What do you look for when starting a team, when building a team? How do you go about, because I mean, what, you've got, to do everything that you do, you build, what, at least five teams a year? Yeah, I I have a lot of variations of teams. I'd say I have two, like, main teams, and then I have a lot of sub-teams. Okay. I will draw on something that I teach in my introduction to communication class. All teams, to function, need certain roles filled. So there's action roles which for me are people who can get a group of people to do things or someone who comes up with the actual strategic plan of making it happen or someone who I, people I like to call finishers. Hmm. People who like, I know that when it gets down to it, they're going to finish it, right? Other people might burn out. I'm someone who typically, I like to motivate and plan, but like I am not a finisher. So I need finishers. So those are what I would call action-oriented people. There's thought-oriented people, so people who are either really creative, people who 
are good at monitoring things as they're happening. Um, and then people who can come up with innovative ideas uh-huh. when problems arise. Huh. So then there's also people-focused individuals. There's the person who I call the resource finder. So this is a person who likes to go out and find people or connect with outside people. There's the team worker who cares about pulling people together. together. So when I'm picking a team, it doesn't mean I need however many I listed, eight or nine people. But I'm always thinking, if I have one action-oriented person, I probably need to also have a thought-oriented person. Huh. And for every thought and action-oriented person, I probably need a people-oriented person. Huh. And so when I'm interviewing, I am seeing, and I think all of us have all of these things. I think the research shows that we can be two or three of these at the same time. Mm-hmm. But one is going to probably prevail, yeah. particularly in social situations with your peers. And so... When I'm building a team, I really think critically about trying to find balance among all of those things. When I first started building teams, I feel like it was really easy for me to only pick people who were like me, people who are super strategic and go-getters, which like obviously is going to be a disaster because they're all going to hate each other's guts. Right. Because they're going to try to beat each other out. Yes, right. And, yeah. you know, and I think there's another part of me when I build teams where I didn't really try to put really social team workers in, huh. right? It was just people who were strategic to get things done. And gotcha. then they don't have fun, right. right? So I think the balance of all of these ideas is really important. And I never pick a team correctly. I mean, I don't think it would be possible to because interviews are so quick. But if you're strategic, at least finding people along the way, um, I think the chances that your team has balance are higher. Yeah, and you can account for, like, how are those people going to interact with each other? That's always the variable But as well. this is what my mind is like. I, <laughs> You're playing it I'm out to see. I'm always, 100% of the time, imagining how people might interact, who might challenge who to do what, how one person might be great for other people, right? When people start telling the people they're going to live with in their houses, junior and senior year at ACU, I always uh-huh. just laugh because I just, you know, could write down in a note card what they're going to tell me in May of the next yeah. year and then tell them the problems that happen, right? <laughs> Part of me is like I intentionally put one person on the team because I know another person's going to be on the team. Huh. And I know that those two people are going to not get along or uh-huh. get along uh-huh. for a very strategic reason. And maybe that's to offset something else, right? So like that's that's exactly how I think. That's your mind. Because okay. Okay. I'm not trying to pick the nine best people. Okay. No one's going to be the best, right? Like that's not a good strategy, right? You want to pick people who are going to accomplish the goal. And maybe that means only three people are going to be the ones who actually accomplish it, but those six other people needed to be there to give those three people something the they needed to, to actually be successful. Makes sense. Completely makes sense. Okay, so talk about um, talk about interviewing. What do you find with 20-somethings that like they're really lacking as far as like mm-hmm. you sit down at an interview table and you're like, oh, child, like, please. What? Like, what, what are the things that you would coach young adults on be like, look, if you're going to sit down and interview? I would say number one is you shouldn't tell someone a characteristic you have. So when they say, how might you be an asset to a team? Don't say, I'm strategic. Huh. Let me tell you why I'm strategic. <laughs> the better approach would be to say, kind of describe strategy and then give a scenario. So if you're saying, you know, for example, if someone asked me in an interview, what might you bring to the team? I'll say, I'm someone who's really uh, I almost did exactly what I said. <laughs> yeah. I'm someone who likes to see the pieces of a goal and help other people understand all the different elements of what 
things to happen. So for example, in sing song, it's really easy for me to itemize and break down larger goals into smaller things. And if you want to end by saying, I think that makes me really strategic because your audience will have already gotten to that point. It's fine. Uh -huh. But what we don't want is for you to come into an interview and just kind of speak four or five right. words of things you wish you were. Yeah. Or just make these claims that yeah. have no backup. Yeah. So okay. I would say if you're going to make a claim, then provide evidence first. Okay. Which would be how to make an argument anyway. Don't so. just say, people love me. <laughs> And then give examples because in their mind you've kind of shocked right. the interviewer and they're like, oh, this person's conceited or this person <laughs> yeah. thinks more of themselves, right? So start describing and giving really valid, tangible examples and then put a name to what that That's thing super is. Good. Super good. What else? I would say have an accurate perception of the importance of things you've done. So for me, nothing makes me laugh or giggle more in an interview than someone who's like, I was the president a student council. Mm -hmm. I had to manage everything. Mm -hmm. I was challenged. And so, you know, it sounds like they're describing the presidency of the United States. Right. Instead, I think it would be more appropriate to say, I got the opportunity to lead a group of students as the president of student council. Mm -hmm. And we managed several events, right? I'm describing it accurately. I'm not trying right. to paint it as something bigger than it actually was, but I'm also not self-handicapping by saying like, oh, it's just high school, right? I'm just describing mm. it accurately. Right. And it's not accurately in your sense, it's accurately in mind of who's interviewed, right? Yeah, so or just the reality of the landscape exactly. across the board. If you're talking about high school and you're in college, that's a completely different game. But it's still appropriate to talk about it. If that's your only mm -hmm. experience, just don't try to oversell it hmm. or undersell it. Just say in, exactly what in, it is. In your mind, are you thinking like, oh boy, like you can't, you're not able to fathom what the challenge is that's ahead because you're oh, you're trying to oversell an experience? Exactly. But okay. I think overselling also tells me that you may be power hungry or you might be like really image conscious. Huh. And underselling means that you're insecure hmm. and crumble easily. Okay. Hmm. So I think that just saying, here's what it was, mm -hmm. I have an accurate representation of what it was, mm -hmm. is a, a good way to convince the person you're interviewing with that you're stable and that you have an accurate representation of what you might be getting into, right? Just kind of matter of fact mm -hmm. and not blown out of proportion or like, you know, meek. Yeah. I think you just need to say it how it is. I think it's a, a professional way of communicating. I think you have to be really careful about how you talk about yourself. So. I'm someone, and maybe this is just me as a human being, I just have an adverse reaction to pride in people who are cocky. And so if I'm the person interviewing you and you walk into the room, I don't care what you say. If you give off an era of pride and cockiness, the interview itself is null and void. Hmm. It's going to be really hard for me to ever pick you on my team. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone else really dislikes people who try to win. And if you come in, it doesn't matter how great your experience is. So when I say be careful about how you present yourself, think about things that generally are turnoffs for people, right? So I would say cockiness, uh, the martyr, you know, someone uh -huh. who says, I'm so busy. I, uh, someone who is all over the place, spacey, and try to minimize those things. If they exist in you, which is not a bad thing, and in a team setting, like those are, those can be good things. You need to be really self-aware enough. Mm -hmm that when you're giving responses that your actual content is not clouded by this perception you're giving off that may really not be something that the person wants. It's really mm -hmm. oftentimes not about what you're saying, mm -hmm. but
but it's about the vibe. Uh, okay. okay. Um, and you need to be aware of what your vibe might be, right? I generally have to tone myself back a little bit in interviews because I'm pretty goofy and say weird things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I can come across as, across as braggy, and so I try to frame myself huh. in a way that's not. And again, it's not that I think I inherently either of those things, but I yeah. think in an interview setting, You're feeling the vibe. those things magnify. Mm -hmm. So I would rather present myself as someone who's a little bit more stable. Mm -hmm. So I'd say those are three yeah. three things I see. Can you talk a bit about coaching just young adults that are on your team? How do you take someone who like is a volunteer and you need to nudge them along, but you want to do it in a way that is helpful to them, that's beneficial to them, that doesn't destroy them, but you also, also move them forward? Your team seem to have like a massive output because I think they're, at least from what I see, they're always very clear on what your expectations are. I think um, that's just kind of my leadership style. And yeah. I'm not always perfect at this, but I try to say, here's exactly what I want. And maybe yeah. that's because I'm extremely strict. I would say that it took me a while to realize this, that, and maybe from my time working at camps, you know, at Pine Cove, I had kind of a managerial role for mm -hmm. two years. And at Sky Ranch, which I worked at in my master's, I did too. And those experiences and others have made me realize that when you're trying to create change in someone else mm -hmm. mentor someone else that it needs to be done from what your strengths are as a mentor mm. i am not someone who loves to sit down and have really deep serious conversations with people about something they need to change maybe that's because my family's pretty non-confrontational uh -huh. not in a bad way just we just never have super serious talks about anything when we do they're very matter of fact i'm also someone who is very gifted at kind of that social strategy. This is why I love Survivor so much, right? Because it's <laughs> it's not about what they're saying, it's about how they're saying it, when they say it. Let's say there's a student who I think needs to be more confident in their ability to lead. I will not sit down in a room with them and say, tell me about how you feel about leading. But that's not who I am. That's not uh, something I'd be good at. Huh. What I can do successfully is put them in a team, in a scenario, where they're forced to lead because I understand everyone else. Hmm. And afterwards, hopefully, follow up and say, how was, how was y'all's project you needed to do? And they express something to me and I help them unpack an emotion they're feeling that I didn't have to tell them, but they experienced themselves. Hmm. Nice. So I'd say that's how I coach students the most is putting them in scenarios, mm -hmm. thinking long-term about where they might be able to grow or something they might be able to challenge be challenged in and before I speak a word about it I have put something into motion that I know will challenge them in that particular way huh. and embrace opportunities to talk about it but also understand that I may not actually talk to them about this thing right maybe, maybe that's someone who needs to be more of a leader so I put them in a place where there's not a lot of leadership uh -huh. or maybe it's someone who needs to tone back how they lead and so maybe I put them in a place with sensitive people or with someone else who's strong. Yeah. Um, and so I think the, the complicated element of that kind of coaching is that when you have 50 people and you want to have goals for all 50, what's the best arrangement of those 50 people huh. so that multiple goals can be achieved at the same time? So I would say that I usually don't try to coach everyone, but when I see an opportunity that's going to make sense and be realistic, that that's I, I, I focus on those things.
Okay, that completely makes sense. Can I shift gears on you for a sec? Let's talk about just communication as a whole. In teaching communication, what's been your most effective thing that you've done? Because like obviously students resonate really well with you in the classroom. What's kind of your strategic thought towards teaching as a whole? Like how can you get attention of people? Again, I'll go back to the idea that you need to be who you are when you're teaching. So I am not someone who really enjoys or even thrives on like really developing deep personal <laughs> relationships with my student and having them reflect and me engage in their personal reflection. That's not something I'm gifted with, right? Huh. On Strength Finders, my last strength is empathy. Wow. Okay. The last one. My top strengths are strategic and competitive and analytical. Mm -hmm. And so I try to focus on huh. those. on those things. I would say my teaching philosophy, if I were to kind of boil it down, would be number one, spend as much time talking about something as is warranted by that topic. So I feel like something that killed me in college uh -huh. when a professor could have given a lecture in 10 minutes when they took 50. I feel like when okay. students get anxious and feel like their time is wasted, at least this is how I am, that there's going to come a point where the switch of attention and focus is turned off. Oh, wow. Entirely. Yeah. So if I talk too much about something, even if I think it's interesting, and again, it's I'm not teaching just for the students because if I did that, then it'd be gifs and memes. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I need to proportion things appropriately. Yeah. So if I think that after oh, ten minutes, good. it's not going to be like it's going to have lost them, then I need to focus on the best things in that ten minutes, and then I'll move on. Gain students' respect by respecting their time. Huh. Right. And that also applies to you know if I if today we're talking about communication in families and I finish in 30 minutes and I'll say hey I respect your time I told you exactly what you needed to know the end I'm not going to just fill up a class yeah because I feel like I have to fill up a class. yeah so I feel like by engaging with students in a way that in my opinion or I'm not one of them so I can't know kind of only as while they're paying attention then they're always interested in what I'm saying I don't ever have to fight for them to pay attention uh -huh. so I think another thing is that all content has a choice in how it's framed. So I talk about groups a lot, group communication mm -hmm. in my communication classes. Now, I if I could use a textbook, all the examples would be about the workplace, right? And all the examples would be about things that aren't interesting to students. So I try to make content as relevant as I possibly can for students. I'm like, what from this, whether I need to manufacture relevance or whether the relevance already exists, do I, what can I, how can I relate this or frame this in a way that's going to be interesting to them? Because the content, I'm going to be able to deliver the content however I want. But what's the avenue through which I actually hmm. deliver that content? So for groups, right, you better believe I make social club jokes and I talk about the office, uh -huh. right? And I talk about things that even if I wasn't talking about groups, students would want to hear me right. talk about social clubs right. and talk Either about way. the office, right? So when I'm talking about groups, they're interested. Because I'm taking something that's content and applying it to something yeah. that they enjoy. And those are those are easy because we see you know, teamwork and things and those things. But there are some things, like I talk about culture. So I talk about like the Hofstede's dimensions of culture. I'm in a room full of students who really don't know anything about culture at all. There's going to be few examples that I can bring into the classroom that are really interesting to them if I'm being pessimistic, that they'll be interested about culture. So in that day, I'm like, okay, what do students like? Students love Disney, 
right? So I'm going to try to relate every cultural element mm-hmm. to a Disney movie. Because mm-hmm. even if it's kind of loose, they're still going to remember it. They're still going to want to know what's coming next, mm-hmm. right? So I really just try to inject my classroom so that even if I wasn't talking about content, even if I just was making jokes, which is maybe what it seems like when I'm teaching, <laughs> they'd still want to be there. Because right. then I don't ever have to fight for their attention. Because huh, they're engaged no matter what. Exactly. I'm not going to sacrifice the content at all. right? And there's going to be times that I have to sacrifice enjoyment and focus to focus on content. right? Some things are just inherently boring. right? Uh, but if I can make it exciting, then that's the recipe I use to mm. keep students. I also study humor in the classroom. It's one of the main things I study. How does humor motivate students to pay attention and learn and feel valued? And so I try to be as funny as possible. And really? If that means going across the line a little bit and apologizing to Phil Schubert on the microphone in the classroom, or being funny about things that we are talking about, being relevantly funny. Mm-hmm. I do that. That's something that I really try to do in all of my teaching. Huh. Okay, well, I, I resonate deeply with some of that in my own teaching. You probably have just more strategy behind it, and mine just feels more of like off the cuff. Um, but I think what you're doing is you're reading the room, right? When someone looks unengaged, then yep. you think, what can I do to engage them? Yep. Right, so you're, it's this two-way feedback yep. that you're using throughout the whole time. You feel like that takes extra work to do, opposed to if you were just just use an example from a textbook? For sure. I mean, I... That is that kind of two-way feedback and on-the-fly humor. Because like one of the things when I'm teaching is like I my slides are just boring. There's nothing if I handed my slide deck to someone else, it would yeah. just look like a slide deck. All the stuff that I'm making up is from you. For the most part, it's just me being funny on the fly. Like I don't Got prepare it. any of it. Got it. Um, sometimes like I'll have to find a clip beforehand. But for me. It's not difficult at all to mm. come into class and just make up stuff. Yeah, maybe that's because I have kind of a background in that kind of improv thing. And maybe because yeah. like, that's how I function every day is just kind of say bizarre things. But it's not difficult for me. For another teacher, like I remember getting observed in my PhD and them thinking like, where did all those jokes come from? Because you did it. Just made them up. Just <laughs> now. Just I just made it up. right? I, I, don't, I never anticipated telling that story about seventh grade. But I... It came to mind, and I read the room, and I thought it was appropriate, right? So it. It, it's not necessarily difficult for me, but I would say that for a lot of people, it's not easy to incorporate humor because they're not naturally humor. It takes them a longer time to develop humor, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of strategies you can use to kind of insert humor a priori before the lecture happens, and I do that as well, but I just am lucky in the fact that it's not difficult for me to yeah, the joke it just comes fly. Natural. Because maybe that's how I interact on an everyday basis. And there's probably a level of confidence, too. I mean, you talk to 100%. most comedians, they're like, once you lose the confidence in the room, you might as well sit down. Yep. Because that game is over. And that's part of it, too. Over. Like, if they hate me after halfway, I'm going to stop the jokes. <laughs> I think you've got to read the room. Exactly. There's too much of that. That's so true. And crossing the line, I completely understand that as well. Got to shock them for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so as we start to wrap up, here's a question that I think a lot of people would want to know from you. If you look back over the five years that you just had, what's one thing that you wish you had another shot at to do differently? And how would you have done it differently? I'm someone who really hates to disappoint. And maybe it's also because I hate disappointing myself. You know, I want to be successful and winning. And I feel like my transition from Kentucky to Abilene was really messy in a lot of ways. You know, as you can guess, just like here, my plate was so full. Sure. In Kentucky. 
and it was like trying to pass off two very full plates and I feel like a lot was lost like I, I feel like I accomplished everything I needed to accomplish but I feel like there were a lot of things that I didn't pay enough attention to or Perhaps I wasn't thinking strategically enough when I was in Kentucky to kind of have an exit plan. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the last half of my PhD was basically just survival huh. as opposed to, to doing well. And I feel like in many ways, like the first year of being back at ACU was survival because mm-hmm. I was just doing it all at once. Mm-hmm. So I don't know in particular what I would change, but I feel like I wish I had been more thoughtful about things I needed to drop mm-hmm. or what needed the most of my time in that kind of year transition because it was difficult you know i changed my entire life and i happened so quickly and i was doing so much that i don't think i really thought strategically about the transition so that was that's probably what i would say and that was three years ago i completely get that what would you suggest to someone who doesn't know next step to take in life i've never thought about what my next step was other than like project goals you know i feel as if you want to set yourself up for the possibility of things that you could enjoy in life Hmm. and so the decision you make right now should probably not be to only achieve one goal but it should be doing things that could help you achieve many goals that you could have in the future Hmm. and by doing that when something actually comes along then you'll be ready for it Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you've put all your eggs in one basket then there's no way that if something else comes along or you don't get the thing that you thought you were going to get, that you are going to be happy or successful. I also just am such a firm believer in not getting your hopes up for anything. So there's so many opportunities, right? But I never sit and let myself get wildly excited or invested in one particular thing. You know, I really try to keep it even so that regardless of the next step, that I have some motivation going into it. Huh. Um, just like, you know, when I was applying to PhD programs, if I had just said, it's Kentucky or bust. I'm so excited. <laughs> I want to do that. And then it didn't happen. What am I going to do next? Right? But if I let myself be excited about it, but not overly excited, mm-hmm. then I can take that kind of energy and push it towards anything that's coming my way and not just something in particular. Wow. So okay. I think it's like letting yourself be equally open-minded, but also like still allowing yourself to be excited about particulars that kind of has allowed me to kind of take punches as things don't go well or do go, do go well mm-hmm. because I've never really fully invested. I've invested my time, but yeah. I haven't invested my emotions and my spirit in something. All into one basket. Yeah, so that if I do, like maybe, it, maybe that's the strategic part of me. If it doesn't work out, sure, I'm going to be sad, but I'm only going to be as sad as I was excited. And huh. If that was huh. an appropriate a healthy amount, dose, then it's going to be okay. Completely makes sense. Completely makes sense. Let's help the people that want to do an interview with you in the future because you say you do a thousand interviews a year, it feels like. What's a question that no one ever asks you in interviews that you're surprised? I think like in an interview, sometimes understanding my strategy or my purpose is interesting. Mm-hmm. At least I think, especially like when it comes to things that are stupid, like sing song and freshman follows and acapella groups. I think like hearing me talk about this plan I had could be a cool thing for people to understand and maybe yeah. more willing to kind of buy into what's happening. So when I get interviewed about things that I'm doing, I think it could be fun to talk about why I did them and a little bit of the mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But I, obviously it's very situational. I obviously enjoy your scratch work. I think a lot of times people get, yeah, like the math analogy of you get an extra sheet of paper and do the math. I I like knowing more of that than what your answer is or how you did something like that. Because every time I see it, I'm like, 
of course. Like, <laughs> of course he went at it there. But I want to know, like, the reason behind the strategy. Yeah. Behind. That's always been interesting yes. to me. That's um, something I'd like to talk it. about at least more in interviews. Not that sure. I think it's an important thing, but, like, something that would get me excited. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, let's hit him up with those questions then. Last question for you, something that we always ask. What are you on to right now? What's a self-revelation that you're coming to learn? Uh, what's something different that you found out about yourself? Anything along those lines. What are you on to? Jess talked about having lots of potential futures. And I think something that is the opposite of that, that I naturally do, is I just like keep my head down. And I don't let myself see that far ahead. Um, and maybe that's out of survival because if I really truly looked up and saw all the things that were coming my way, uh-huh. then it would be overwhelming. overwhelming and I would not be motivated. And so I, it's really easy for me just to power through the now. And it allows me to be really successful because I accomplish everything that I need to. And again, when I'm thinking futuristically, of course I look towards the future, but I don't often kind of look up and see things that I haven't anticipated or things that I could want in the future. Hmm. And so I think I'm in a season where I just finished my PhD. I've been at ACU for a couple of years and I'm starting to ask myself questions. What do I really want to do long-term? Hmm. What do, what's going to be sustainable? What not like, not what can I win at, but what, what do I want to do? Huh. And so I think I'm exploring that in a lot of ways right now, thinking of like outlandish things and, seeing them through futuristically or even just thinking about if it was business as usual, right? If I just kept doing what I was doing. And I feel like I've kind of come to the realization that in my whole life, if I'm so futuristic, but don't kind of let myself dream about things, then I'm kind of living a dichotomous life, you know? So I'm trying to apply that strategy to kind of in like a selfish way and thinking about things that I could really want and need to do long term. That maybe you haven't given room to it before. Exactly. Maybe I haven't even toyed around with the idea because I've only been toying around with mm-hmm. other things. I feel like that may be a really good word for anyone who sits in the chair of a three as well of just like, that's a big temptation to always head down and keep going. Yeah. It's like, and it's needed in some seasons. It feels exactly. Like and I well. feel like if I didn't self reflect and if I didn't self direct, then I would only just continue jumping from winning path to winning path. And, this, and when I say winning path, I mean like path that I'm confident I could champion. And tackle. Yep. And tackle. And I don't know where that would lend me. You know, I right. have, would maybe be at 10 different jobs at ACU and I would right. just take the opportunities that came my way. But sometimes it's important, at least for me, to just kind of ignore those and just see what other paths are there and see if they're something that's beneficial to explore, even if it's not the one that makes the most sense. Yeah. Uh, because maybe down the line that one is going to make sense, or maybe it's just going to be something that brings me happiness. And it doesn't; those aren't necessarily always the same. Yeah, or just assumed of what anyone would think you're just going to go down because that's the path you've gone down before. Yeah, and I feel like I'm less of a three in the sense that I don't really care what people think about mm-hmm. me. I really, it's my threeness is very like self-reflective, mm-hmm. and so maybe it's more of what path I saw myself going down. Huh? You know? Yep. Completely understand. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton, Nick, for being willing to do this. All right. This has been the On to Something pod with Nick Tatum. Thanks for listening in this week. And also, if you haven't subscribed or if you haven't followed yet, I would highly recommend doing that. We have some things coming down the pipe that are going to be really fun, and we'll start letting you know about it in a week or two. 
So let me know how we're feeling about interviews. If there's someone that is similar to Nick or different than Nick that uh, you'd love for me to interview, then just let me know and we'll try to line it up. Till next time, everyone, may you remember that you are onto something.